If you have your Bibles, let's turn with us. Revelation chapter number two today. Man, the book of Revelation chapter chapter number two is where we are reading this morning. And we're thrilled to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. If you got a bulletin this morning, you'll notice if you're new here that there is a uh, portion that you can tear out. We'd love for you to fill out your information and stick it in the offering pan after church or hand it to myself. We'd love to have a record of your visit with us this morning. And also, whether you're new here or not, on the backside of that, there is a place for you uh, to fill out prayer requests. If there's something on your heart, we would love to pray for you. A group of us gather every Tuesday at noontime and we pray, pray for the church, pray for the needs that we have, and we would love to pray for you. Or if it's something that you would like, you know, myself to know and confidential, you can mark that, let, let me know as well. But we want to, certainly want to pray for you. Pray for the needs that you have. So, uh, so fill those out, stick them in the bullet, stick them in the offering pan at the church, give them to myself if you would, whatever you do. We would love to get to know you, to bear your burdens before the Lord. Again, Revelation chapter number 2, verse number 8 is where we are reading today. Bible says these words unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and who came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt. By the second death. Amen. The word of the Lord for us this morning. You know, we we teach our children that fable, that parable of the tortoise and the hare, turtle and the rabbit. And of course, you'll remember the point of the parable is the rabbit is so much faster than the turtle that he Runs around like crazy, he mocks, he ridicules, he wastes time during the race, and the turtle simply plods along. Suddenly you get to the end of the race. The rabbit realizes way too late that the turtle is about to cross the finish line before he has, or he is. Despite the rabbit's best efforts to catch up, the race is won. Not by the one who is fastest, but simply by the one who persistently moved forward. Obviously, the lesson is great. The moral of the story is good, and we should proclaim it to our kids. 
In fact, if you lead a men's breakfast at church, you should proclaim it to the men at church like you did yesterday. (laughs) This is what Jim talked about. Persistence, not giving up, pressing on, not quitting, not worrying about flash or show, but whether consistently moving forward is the answer to success, to winning, to whatever you might say. The one who finishes his week's assignment is the one who gets the paycheck, the one Finishes the course in school is the one who gets the grade. The one persists in making that monthly payment is the one who is given the title of the house and the recognition of knowing that you own, you have paid off this property. But of course, the part that we leave out to our kids a lot of time is this. Yes, it is true, you have to persist, you have to be dedicated, you have to move forward. But often that moving forward is met. Met with obstacles, met with hurdles, met with pain and difficulty, hardship, sorrow. You sacrifice so much, you go through so much. And that is how you ultimately, ultimately prevail in life. It's no more true than our relationship with God. God wants a life of faithfulness. He wants a life that is dedicated to Him. But He wants a life that is dedicated in the midst of pain, and hardship, and even persecution. Jesus has a message to the church in Smyrna, and the message is this. You are going to face trouble. Will you be faithful to me in the midst of it? This message is not just to Smyrna, but also to the church today here in eastern Pennsylvania, China, all over where His people are found. Will you be found faithful? no matter what comes your way. And so we get into the text this morning, we notice that Jesus speaks to the church of Smyrna. Jesus speaks to the the church of Smyrna, and I should probably point out here that these letters follow by and large a similar pattern. So I did not, I promise, just change the name and Write the same message that I had last week. There are some differences, but (laughs) if after a few weeks you feel like there's a feeling of deja vu going on here, it's because these things are are similar in a lot of ways. But but the point of it is, and the point I made last week, and especially the first week, we need to remind ourselves of the one who is speaking to the church, who is addressing the church. You know, there's a similar pattern. The words are different. The churches are facing different things. And Jesus has a message for him. And so we read again here in verse 8, the angel of the church, Smyrna, write, these are the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Who's speaking again? Go back to chapter 1 and you see those words again. Revelation 1, 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. 
I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the key of death and Hades. As you know, the Greek alphabet, Alpha, is the first letter. Omega is the last. If this was written originally in, the, in America, and we would say, I am the A to the Z, but obviously it doesn't sound so good. So that's why we say, I am the Alpha and Omega, even though we speak English. Jesus, the New Testament, gives both God and Jesus this title, the Alpha and Omega, as well as the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. What it is saying is this, God in Christ is not only the first and the last, but He is also comprised of everything in between. Thus God is expressing and affirming His fullness. His comprehensiveness, His all-inclusiveness. He is the source of all life and He will bring all things to their appointed end. Book of Revelation, God is called the Alpha and Omega because all revelation begins from Him. And it ends with Him. He is the Creator and Terminator of all life. Christ bears this title because He is the source and goal of life. If we have anxiety about how the world will end and what it will be like after this life is over, we can rest assured that the same God who began this world as the Alpha will be there in the end as the Omega. The Lord presents Himself many times as the Alpha and Omega in Revelation and the reason He does is to assure the people that He is writing to, to these churches, that He is in complete control of every aspect of our lives. That He is the source of assurance and comfort in our trials. And so you begin to see why Jesus says these words, I am the first and the last. He is wanting the church, the Smyrna, know that He was there long before they came into existence. He will be there long after they have gone out of existence. He will be there in every aspect of their life. Of course, He says, I am dead. Or I was dead and I live. I'm alive forevermore. He was dead and alive. He rose again. He rose again, and therefore, because Christ lives, Paul tells us in Corinthians, He has defeated the greatest enemy, which is the enemy of death. Christ has conquered even death, hell, and the grave, as we just sang about. And because of that reality, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear Jesus Jesus is the one that is speaking to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna, again, is one of the major cities of Asian Minor and is often compared with Ephesus that we talked about last week in Pergamon. For supremacy in the world in which these churches lived, it was a city of great beauty, vibrant, and although originally built on a fortified hill, but during the time of Alexander the Great, it was rebuilt along the shore and its harbor became a, a major asset to the city as it became an entryway, an entry point into much of Asia Minor, which of course is modern-day Turkey. But what is most important to consider with this city of Smyrna is that Smyrna was a city that prided itself on its devotion to Rome. 
the Roman emperors. Smyrna had several temples built to the Roman imperial cult, and the worship of the Roman emperor dominated every aspect of city life. If you don't know, the NFL playoffs, the football playoffs are going on now, and of course there's lots of talk, is this city a town that cares most about its football or its baseball or whatever you can you can always tell right when you drive down and you see the the flags everything in city everybody's walking around in their uniform and their jersey or whatever i want to say not that they're wearing uniforms but you can tell what what matters to them you can tell what dominates their their life you walk down Smyrna, you knew that the Roman Empire and devotion to the Roman Empire was a major theme. In fact, Greg Bill wrote a commentary, Revelation, and he states this about Smyrna. He says, indeed, the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of city and often village life in Asia Minor so that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. Did you hear that? The way to get ahead in life. In Rome, in the Asia Minor, was to be devoted to Rome. Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions. Sometimes even visitors and foreigners were invited to do so. City officials were so dedicated to the cult that they even distributed money to citizens from public funds to pay for sacrifices to the emperor. It was almost impossible to have a share in a city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. Those refusing to participate were seen as politically disloyal and unpatriotic and often would be arrested and punished according to Roman law. Imagine that. Imagine that here in our country. Imagine that you know how to make cookies or sticky buns or coffee or whatever you all like to cook. And you think, man, I would love to go in business for myself because I'm sick and tired of working for this warehouse that I am. And you take that money and you purchase that, per- that empty building there on 512 on Broadway. And the borough officials come to you and say, that's great. Where are you going to stick the statue of the president? Where are you going to stick the statue of the governor? Where are you going to stick his picture so that we can all pay homage to it when we come in. That's what it was like to live in Smyrna. I mean, you wanted to go to Giant, pick up a few things because yesterday was busy and you didn't have to go to the store and you realize as you walk in there, the first thing you have to do is not run for the ice cream, which is what I would do. You have to give the president your worship. Your homage. You didn't kiss his ring. You're not paying. You're not getting that ice cream. You know, I don't know. It's mint chocolate chip. It's great, but you ain't having it. Sorry. 
This is what Smyrna was like. And so you can understand why the one who speaks to them says, I am the first and the last, the one who is dead and is alive. Jesus speaks to them. Secondly, Jesus Jesus encourages them. Encourages them. You're listening, living in a city. Again, that's large, prosperous, full of great things to do and civic life to be involved in. The theaters are there and everything is good. It's such a wonderful place. And yet all around it is devotion to the Roman emperor, devotion to the, the Roman governments. You can understand why this little bitty group of people there in the midst of several hundred thousand would need some encouragement, need someone to speak to them and say, you can be faithful. And guess what? Jesus speaks to them. Verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know you're rich and the slander of those who are say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What is the encouragement to him? He tells them, I know. I see. I am watching. Watching over you. You ever just think about that? That God is watching. That God cares. God is interested in my life. That God sees every aspect of my life. Do you honestly, seriously believe that? You know, Paul was there in prison. He's about to lose his life and he's writing to Timothy the, some of the last words he ever wrote. And he says in 1 Timothy 4, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Again, they know he's about to lose his life. I mean, you know, good luck, Paul. Hopefully it don't hurt too much. Paul says, may it not be charged against him. But then he says, but the Lord stood by me. Even when my closest companions ran away, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I was rescued from the lion's mouth, he says. The Lord, the Lord was there. The Lord was there. I mean, I mean, you know, they're about to throw you three Hebrew children into the fiery furnace and, and don't worry because God can deliver us. And, and look who's right there in the middle of the fire waiting, waiting for them. We quote one Psalm, Psalm 139 as a defense against abortion and it fits. Speaks of God knitting us together in our mother's womb, but don't overlook those first few verses. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand on me. God knows every. Every aspect of our lives. We have an app on our phone called Life360. 
And all of our family has it on there. We have it on there, so they know where the boys are and they know where we are or whatever else. And this app works so great that when I was in Egypt and Turkey, 2021 there, I was connected to the Wi-Fi and they could see my location, that they could see where I was halfway around the world. But they didn't really know what I was doing. They're trying to figure out the hours or six, seven hours ahead of you. Am I eating way too much Turkish delight? Yes, maybe the case, but here we are. God knows more than just where you are. God knows every aspect. He knows every thought, every depth of your heart. He knows every tear and every reason why those tears are there in your life. God knows. He sees you. What does He know? He knows our tribulation. He knows our suffering for the sake of the gospel. It's a Greek word for tribulation. Maybe your Bible says affliction. It's a little bit more than just a, a minor inconvenience. Rather, this word conveys extensive tribulation. This church was facing very hard, difficult times because of their unwillingness to get themselves involved in Rome and worship of Rome. He knows their poverty again does not mean that I cannot supersize my extra value meal for lunch today. The word poverty means it is a denial of the very basics of life. The church has suffered tremendously because they refuse to go along and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. They proclaim that Christ alone is Lord. And guess what? It cost them dearly in so much that it was very hard to make basic ends meet. He knows that they are being slandered. And slandered of those who claim to be Jews and yet they're not. In fact, Jesus says they're of the synagogue of Satan. It's difficult maybe to fully understand what Jesus is referring to, but, but He's probably speaking of those ethnic Jews who have aligned or compromised with Rome in some, some way, and as a result, were openly persecuting the Christian community. Rome allowed the Jews to worship as they always did. They did not allow Christians to worship, and many Jews were turning against the Christians, and they were going along with Rome and compromising with Rome and, and getting involved in this Roman devotion and Roman worship. And as a result, they were selling out the Jews who were in their midst. Of course, Rome would come and punish and persecute Christians. We see this today. High up government official, a secretary, wears his faith on the sleeve. And yet the secretary is married to another man. Quite frankly, is terrible at his job if you've seen the news. And yet at the same time, instead of doing his job, he likes to chastise us fundamentalists to say, you know, God's Word defines what marriage should be. 
likes to look at us and say, we're the problem. We're the one. And even though probably maybe even right now he's sitting in a church in Washington, D.C. Yet we are the problem we should accept. Accept his sinful lifestyle. See, that's what the synagogue of Satan is doing. Ones that say they're Jews and they're not, they get along and and here this church is. he's, He's telling them, why don't you just worship Rome? Why don't you devote yourself to Rome? Why do you say that only Christ is Lord and He's the only thing that matters? Jesus sees their tribulation, poverty, the slanderous accusations. Let's not pass over the parenthesis there that's in your Bible. Mine as well. I see your poverty, your tribulation and your poverty again in verse 9. But you are rich. You are rich. Jesus probably is reminding them His words that He gave there in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Moss and rut destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. Maybe you had the opportunity to go and do some work this morning and you chose to come to church. You made the right decision. Hey, look, I'm always for an extra buck. If you want to give it to me, that's great. But do I realize that more than just having financial wealth, what matters? What matters is you coming here and and putting your arm around me and hugging me and say, I love you. And and for me to do the same to you, for you to lay your hands on me and pray for me and me to pray for you, for you to join your voice together in mine in song. Hopefully to drown out my voice for sure. To join our hearts together in singing and praise to our God. Paul told Timothy, for the rich in this present age, 1 Timothy 6, charge him not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly gives us everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future. That they may take hold of that which really is life. True wealth is not in our cars or home or whatever. True wealth is not in having a Maserati or a Porsche or whatever. True wealth maybe is having a good old rust bucket that has an empty seat that you can stick somebody in and bring them to church. Maybe you have to pray a little bit harder to get that thing started. But We think about Chick-fil-A. It's the third largest fast food chain in the country and I have single-handedly made it that way. They've done that even though they're closed one day a week. Where would they be if they were open on Sundays? As much as McDonald's or, I don't know, Burger King a second or whatever. Trust me, I've kept all three of them in business. Where would they be? And yet, and again, I'm not saying that we're going to have Chick-fil-A and the Married Supper of the Lamb. It might be there. I might enjoy it. 
The point is simple, though the world looks at us and they say, why are you putting yourself through the troubles and trials you're facing? Go and pursue these things. But we as believers, we as believers should not be like the synagogue of Satan. Should be like Moses. Hebrews 11 by faith, Moses. He was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Meaning maybe he was next in line to the throne. Chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy, to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. May not get much recognition in this life by serving the Lord, by helping the least. It may not matter much to this world that you have given to a missionary who's in some country that you can't even spell and, and they're halfway around the world. When they go and they tell people about Jesus and thousands are one, one day you're going to stand there and you're going to say, it was worth it all. Yes, in this life you're poor, but you have true wealth. So Jesus encourages the church. Notice he also exhorts the church. Exhorts. Exhorts the church. The word exhort simply means an urgent appeal. He appeals to the church. What does he say to them? Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in a prison that you may be tested. For in ten days you will have tribulation. I don't know about you, but I hear those words and I'm not, I don't know if I'm exactly fired up and ready to go. Don't fear. Don't fear, you're about to suffer. In fact, you're going to be thrown in prison. You're going to have tribulation for 10 days, probably maybe not a, a literal 10 days, but more likely a, a reference back to Daniel where Daniel and the three Hebrew children were tested for 10 days because they were unwilling to eat of the king's food. So Jesus used that alliteration to a church who's unwilling to bow the knee to this king. Point to the church is simple. This is not going to be easy. This is going to cost you. Let me read to you some other words. Luke 14, if anyone does not come to me, or if anyone does come to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Go back to verse 2. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Matthew 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated. By all nations for my sake. What's the exhortation? What's the challenge? What is the message that Jesus gives to this church at Smyrna? Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. 
You know, Jesus said these words too. Don't, feel those, don't fear those who kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. Don't worry about the one who can put a gun to your head and pull the trigger, and after that, that's all he can do to you. Jesus says, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body and hell. You should notice this is the test. Fact is, when times of persecution, when times of tribulation come, they are always coming to test to try to determine the authenticity of your faith. But if your faith and your hope is steadfast in Jesus, if you really meant what we sang about this morning when we said Christ is enough and, and just give me Jesus and take everything else, if your faith is really steadfast in Him, you don't need to worry. It's a tough word. It's a tough exhortation. We don't like the idea of facing trials and persecutions for our faith. Simple truth of the matter is this is the story of the church throughout most of its history. And even today in most of the world. I looked on the Voice of the Martyrs website just Wednesday, Thursday, whenever I was doing this. Their latest stories about persecution include the countries of Nepal, India, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Kenya. Might it one day include the nations of North America, the nation of the United States. Oh, not us. I mean, haven't you seen our coin? In God we trust, yeah. Haven't you seen the news? That's far away from where we are, isn't it? What if it comes? What if one day we are challenged? Pastor, you, you have to. You have to marry these two. I know they're the same gender, but we don't care. You better marry them or we're going to shut down the church. You have to give part of your money to Planned Parenthood. We know that they stand for everything you're against, but you're giving your money to them. What if in your own life you're told you will wear you will wear this uniform with this logo on it. Or you will not be paid. You will not work here. So impressed when players from the Tampa Bay Rays this summer and the team wanted to wear pride uniforms and they said, no, we're not going to wear them. And again, they're not making the minimum wage job that you're making. They're making millions of dollars. <laughs> so maybe that's why they said it. I don't know. Do you think we will walk away rather than wearing it because this goes against our belief? Do we have? Do we have the willingness? And of course, the godless secular sports media, they laughed and ridiculed and mocked them. Not here to put you in a state of doom and gloom. But I am here to ask you this morning, what about you and your life? Are you willing to stand if it costs? Maybe cost everything. And could you hear the exhortation? The exhortation. Be faithful even to the point 
of death. Be faithful. Even if it costs everything. Jesus speaks, he encourages, he exhorts the church finally. Finally, Jesus assures them. He assures them. Verse 11, hear what the Spirit says, he who has an ear to hear. The one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Again, he says, be faithful in the death and I will give you, again in verse 10, the crown of life. The crown is a familiar image. Probably better visualized as a wreath. It's given to a winning athlete. It's given to a military conqueror. It shows up in funerary settings as the bodies of, of the deceased were frequently adorned with gold leaf wreaths. Such wreaths were testimonies to a life well lived and value and virtue that they achieved in life. John, no doubt, has this background in mind as he writes these words of Jesus. And the message is clear. Dying for loyalty to Jesus did not mark one as a deviant or a loser, but rather as a winner, a conqueror, a person who lived and died virtuously, a person who would continue to live and enjoy honor, in God's greater empire. And why is this? Why are we exhorted to be faithful? It's because of this assurance that we are given. The one who conquers, the one who is faithful, will not be hurt by the second death. Because Christ is the faithful one. Because Christ is the one who died and rose again. Because Christ is the first and the last. The one who was there before Rome was ever an inkling. And somebody thought and was there long after Rome is disintegrated into nothing more than ruins. Christ is the one who was there before 1776. Or 1492 when Columbus sells the ocean blue. Christ is the one when our names are changed and we're speaking a different language or whatever. Christ will still be faithful. As He told Mary and Martha at the grave of Lazarus, John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. That's why a lot of times in the New Testament you read the words not die, but sleep. It's trying to distinguish and delineate between a death that is no hope and a death that dies, a person that dies with hope. And we can really mean what we sang this morning when I come to die and I come to the end of my life and I stand there before God. He is faithful. He will receive me in the glory. And may I be faithful to Him to the very end. You know, there's an ironic twist to this letter. 
involves a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, the pastor of Smyrna. He was the first recorded martyr in Christian history, the post-New Testament church history outside of the, the apostles that we read about. He lived during the most formative era of the church at the end of the age of the original twelve. And the church was making the critical transition to the second generation of believers. Many believe that he was probably discipled by none other than John himself. He converted many from Gnosticism. His only existing letter was a pastoral letter to the church of Philippi. And yet at 86 years of age, in the mid-150s, the Roman Empire came looking for Polycarp. But he had a prayer, he had a vision while he was in prayer at that time. And he told his friends that he was going to be burned alive. The soldiers showed up to Polycarp's house where he was hiding, staying. His friends urged him to run and Polycarp looked at him and he said, God's will be done. He let the soldiers in. He was escorted to the proconsul's court who interrogated him. Yet he stood there unfazed. Unfazed to the point that the proconsul, his name was Quadratus, lost his temper and he threatened Polycarp. He said he would be thrown to wild beasts. He'd be burned at the stake and so on. And Polycarp looked at Quadratus. Said that his fire lasts but a little while while the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. And then he looked at him and he said, come, do what you will. Soldiers grabbed Polycarp to nail him to a stake. He stopped him. He said, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will also endure me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Climbed on the pyre of wood. He prayed. Fire was lit and he was burned. The one who wrote about his martyrdom said that it was not as burning flesh but as bread baking, gold or silver refined in a furnace. His death had such an impact. The city of Smyrna was moved and even the heathen, even the worshippers of Rome was moved by his willingness. Polycarp is famous for saying these words as he was facing that martyrdom. He said, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? my Savior. Again, what's my point this morning? Do I know what's going to happen? I, I don't know what's going to happen in our country. We look around, we see things are going on. And we wonder. My question to you is this, can you, will you be found faithful? Maybe we go on and things turn around and we live a large and prosperous and happy life. 
Maybe I can make it to 65 or 70 and retire and go and sit on the beach. I don't know. But if I lose my livelihood, will I be faithful to Christ? Maybe you're looking at your own work and you're saying, wow, i got three more years and I can retire and full pension and all this other good stuff. And, and I, I hope you make it. But if it comes a time and you're told, you will do this, we will take it all away, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful? Be faithful to the end. Why? Because, yeah, I, I, yeah, I want my 401k. I mean, I hope the market starts going back up again, but because I want to go out and play golf and enjoy and we threaten our boys that we're going to come and stay at each of their houses for a period of time. And they all said, we're not giving you our address. We're not telling you where we're at. <laughs> yes, I want that life, but more importantly, I want to stand before God and have Him say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Right now, there are men and women all around this world, they're facing that question. When you hear about their stories, pray for them. Pray for them. I challenge you, look up the voice of the martyrs and open doors and international Christian concern. Pray for these people. The writer of Hebrews said, remember your brothers and sisters who are in chains. And as you hear their stories, think about your life and say, Lord, will I be faithful to you? Because you know what? You'll find out. You'll find out the first and the last will always, always be faithful. And Paul told Timothy, even if we deny Him, He remains faithful. He will not deny Himself. He is the faithful one. By the way, He's victorious. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. Amen. Let's pray together this morning, shall we? Worship team, if you guys want to come. Again, this message is to the church of Smyrna. Just as last week the message to Ephesus was don't lose that love for God, that zeal for God. This message is for the church of Smyrna. It's also for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. It's been the message ever since John wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For 2,000 years, men and women have held to this promise that if we are faithful, we will receive the crown of life. And here we are in 2023 again. We drank our coffee and ate our donuts this morning or we'll do it after we're done here in a few minutes. We complained about how things are in Washington and Harrisburg. And yet most of us will go home and we'll enjoy what God has given us. One day things may change. Will we be faithful to Him? And Lord, help me to remain true. Help me to live for You. Lord, help me to understand that even if I am stricken with cancer today and my life is over, that 
it's really not that big a deal. Even if I, even if I go home and I'm arrested and thrown in jail and executed, it's not that big a deal. Because you have conquered death. And when I leave this world, I will be in the presence of God forever. Help me to understand that. Help me to be faithful to you. Help me to remain faithful. To the very end, I pray. In Jesus' name.